Well, good evening. The group seems to be getting smaller each week. <laughs> That's good. I'm glad someone's still here. <clears throat> so we're still in Titus. If you'll turn there in your Bibles, we'll continue working our way through there. And we're still in chapter 1. As we have studied the first four verses, we did our, well, we did our introduction, then we did the first four verses last week. As we've studied those first four verses of Paul's letter to Titus, who he said was his true child in a common faith, um, I want to point out that as Paul reminds Titus of his apostolic authority to give instructions for the church and Christian living, he's also reminding us of the same. So as we read uh, in this letter, though it's so far removed from that time period, it's no less important and instructive for us as Christians. So I hope that we will, that we have gotten something out of it already and will continue to do so. Um, and additionally, we, last week in particular, have been treated to reminders about the character of God. Um, Looking last week at some of the great doctrines of God, such as His sovereignty and salvation, the promise of eternal life, God's immutability, His, His omnipotence, His omniscience. We saw all of those last week. Um, these characteristics of God and doctrines of God are what Titus needed to be reminded of and are what you and I need to be reminded of. So as we, whenever you read, whether it's this letter or any other letter of Paul or any other book of the Bible, and you, and you come across these things, not necessarily in a teaching session, he's writing a letter, but he's stating facts to another Christian. And so when we, as Christians, read facts about God in the scriptures or another believer reminds us of truth about God, we should rejoice in that. And these... Uh, like I said, are what Titus needed to be reminded of and what we need to be reminded of. As we walk through this life, we can forget. Um, we, our faith can sometimes be shaken uh, by circumstances. We can fall into deception and lose our grasp of the truth sometimes. Um, so we need these truths confirmed for us as well. So before Paul gets to the meat of his letter to Titus, it's as if he's saying to this pastor, really, that's what Titus is, he's a pastor, he's an elder, he's saying, remember the God we serve. As I'm about to tell you these things, I want you to start by remembering the God we serve. Remember his power, his authority, his promises, and his salvation, and then he gives instruction with all of that as the backdrop. So when we think of scripture and we think of the things we learn about the Christian life and how we should live that, it should always be in front of the backdrop of who God is and what God has done, what he will do, what he is able to do, which is anything. So we come to verse 5 and the reason that Paul left Titus in Crete. Titus is the one that Paul trusted to do this job that he's going to have him do, and he trusted him to do it right. He trusted him with the responsibility of finding and installing elders in the churches. So let's look at this passage of Scripture tonight in chapter 1 of Titus, starting at verse 5. I'll read through verse 9. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination, for an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. 
So let's have a word of prayer tonight, and then we will continue. Father in heaven, we thank you, Lord, for this night. Uh, We thank you for those that are here as we fellowship, as we read your word, Lord, as we've just sung about Christ as our sure and steady anchor. Lord, I pray that as we study your word, it would be that for us, the, the sure and steady anchor of the word of Christ to keep us from drifting on the seas of all of the different things that people would profess as truth in this world, Lord. May we be anchored to the actual truth, which is your word. We thank you for it. May we, as we read it and study it, Lord, be um, rejoicing in how you have organized your church, how you have provided for us as your people. We are so grateful, Lord, and most of all for your grace and mercy and salvation through faith in Christ. Lord, we praise you for that. We give you glory for that. And you are worthy to be praised. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. So, here we have an island in the first century where the gospel has come and done its work. There are on the island some number of people Uh, who've come to faith in Christ through the preaching of the gospel. I don't know how many. Um, It does not give us an answer on that. Uh, But there are apparently quite a few. Um, And whether it was from the preaching of Paul and Titus or from those Cretans who came to faith in Christ through Peter's preaching at Pentecost, like we, we talked about last week, either way, there are Christians now living on this island, that this island that splits the Aegean Sea and the Mediterranean Sea. Um, There were perhaps um, churches in every single town on the island. Paul indicates in verse 5 when he talks to Titus uh, and says to appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Uh, Either there were churches in every single town or Paul meant every town where there is a church. Um, Either way, and he said, I, and I, I would say, I think it's safe to say there were clearly multiple towns with churches in them, though we don't know how many. There was more than one. Um, so the problem wasn't that churches didn't exist. The problem was the churches were lacking. Okay, they, were, they were missing something. Paul identifies the missing ingredient as qualified elders. If Titus had ever wondered why Paul left the island and told him to stay, this this is Paul's answer. I'm sure Paul told him before because he sort of indicates there when he says, as I directed you. So they had some previous conversation about this. Um, But if he did wonder why Paul left, and Paul gives him a very clear answer here in verse 5, he says, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. So Paul, Paul had clearly, uh, like I said, already spoken to Titus about this, about the subject, uh, because he says, as I directed you. It was sometime in the past, and now Paul's reminding him it's time. Here's your job, Titus, get to it. This is what needs to be done as he sends this letter. And notice that Paul uh, says, um, this is what remained. This thing he wants him to do, appointing elders, it's what remained. The idea being that what Paul had started fixing in the churches still had something left to do. Um, Paul had started working on putting the churches in order, uh, in their doctrine and practice, but that work needed to continue through Titus. Again, there were very few people, I think, who Paul would trust with a task like this, Titus being one of them, I, I think Timothy would have been another. He, he entrusted Timothy with, uh, with these same kinds of things. Uh, but not very many men would, would Paul trust with this task. Um, there was work that remained undone, and, it was, and that work was establishing elders. Uh, also notice, oh, without what remained being fixed, the churches would be disordered. Right? There's, there's a disorder about the churches. 
they would not be functioning properly as God intended. He says to put what remained into order. Set in order. Some translations say set in order or put in order or put into order. And the word that Paul used for this phrase is only found in this verse in the New Testament. Uh, And it can be understood in medical terms. We should think here about broken bones. Perhaps a, a broken leg. Let's go there. As a leg bone is broken, it's put out of place, right? It's, it's out of alignment. Uh, it causes problems. What kind of problems would a broken leg bone cause in a, in a body? Pain? What was that? Uh, trouble walking, okay? Instability, okay? Start thinking of these words you're using in spiritual terms now. What else? What other problems might a broken leg bone cause in the body? You've hit on the main ones. This is why you're having trouble coming up with more. <laughs> um, yeah, it, it is out of alignment. It causes the body not to be able to function properly. Okay, It causes, when things are out of order in this way, it causes pain. There's a limp. Uh, it this leg no longer resembles the other leg. Uh, it is, what was that? Deformity, absolutely. Uh, it's, it's weakened. And depending on how bad the break is, it may become completely useless if not fixed. Right? We, we, can, we can imagine that in terms of a broken leg bone. Well, what does the doctor have to do with a broken bone? You have a broken leg bone. You go to the doctor. What does the doctor have to do? Put it in place, right? Set it. Set it in order. Put it back where it belongs. The doctor has to set the bone back into its proper place. Um, Set it in order so it can heal, so it can grow strong and function properly in the body. And that's what Paul is talking about here. That's the kind of thing he's talking about with the churches. The the churches without biblically qualified elders were like broken bones that needed to be set right. They needed to be put back in order. So question, why why does the church need elders though? What is the big deal? Aren't elders just people as well? Why can't the people just get together and do everything they need to do? What do you think? Okay, elders are, are, have studied the word, they're learned people, okay, sure. What else? Why does the church need elders? You can go to them for support, okay. Provide leadership, yeah. What, is the, what does the church tend to do? What does the people of God tend to do? Wander, right? They tend to wander, to drift away. The church tends to stray. We see it all through the Bible, Old Testament as well, with God's people. This tendency to keep straying away from Him, straying away from His Word, grabbing onto worldly things and pagan ideas, and then getting into idolatry. There's this tendency, and the church needs someone to care for her. And that was. The problem with Judah and Israel when God spoke about their idolatry and the reason that they fell into it. And in Zechariah 10.2, it says, For the household gods utter nonsense, and the diviners see lies. They tell false dreams and give empty consolation. Therefore, the people wander like sheep. They are afflicted for lack of what? A shepherd. Leadership, yeah. They wander for lack of a shepherd. And if you continue on in that passage, God is extremely angry with the shepherds because they have not been shepherding the people. People need leadership. It's a common truth, uh, even in the secular world. Everybody knows this. Everybody understands this concept that someone must lead groups of people or they will be of a different mind. They'll be doing their own thing for their own benefit, going in a hundred different directions. 
And people need someone to follow, and the one they follow must be leading in one direction, with one goal, with one purpose. And though this is how the world functions, it's not a worldly concept. This, didn't, this wasn't invented by the world. God invented this. This is a, a God-given pattern for life, for how his people should function. And it's especially true in the church of God. It's, it's one thing for a secular company to have bad leadership and suffer from perhaps bad morale among the workers or maybe loss of revenue um, or loss of customers, loss of customer support. Um, it's an entirely different thing for the church purchased by the blood of Christ to do their own thing, to go their own way. Um, for them to have bad leadership. If, if for no other reason, we should recognize the church needs elders because God says the church needs elders. This is what God has determined is the truth. It's what he has determined is the plan for his people. Um, and so if you don't agree with any other reason, that reason alone should be enough for us to say, okay, this is God's plan. This is what God has put in place. And people say, we tried that, you know, I've heard this in churches, we tried that, we tried the elder thing, it didn't work, right? Uh, so we don't want elders anymore. Well, if the bone is broken and the doctor refused to care for it properly or didn't know how to care for it properly, do we say that doctors don't work? No, right? We, we don't do that. We find the right doctor. We go to another doctor. We find the one who is truly a doctor, who truly knows the truth of how to set a bone in place, and we go to him. We go to him for the help that we need. We don't just say, we don't need doctors, as a doctor walks in. That's out of context. Don't take it for what you think it means. I'll tell you later. <laughs> uh, so it's the same with the church. Okay, if if the elders are not doing what the Word of God prescribes for the ills of sinful people and for the true worship of God, we don't say elders don't work, right? Or, or that's not the right thing. We're going to try something else. We don't say that. We find the ones who follow the truth. We find the ones who follow the Word of God and care for the church accordingly. You see, just like there are doctors who are unqualified to be doctors. There are elders who are unqualified to be elders. But that doesn't make it true that every other elder is, is bad or wrong or that there should be no elders. And just like it would, shouldn't mean that there should be no doctors. So Paul writes this to make sure Titus remembers what qualifies a person to be a true elder in the church. It's not just anyone. You don't just pluck anyone out and say, okay, you're the elder of this church. And they can't say, like that old commercial, I stayed in the Holiday Inn Express last night, so I can be an elder. Um, so I find it interesting that as we look at this list of qualifications for elders from the first century, we are reminded that people were the same back then as they are now. Right? The, the characteristic or... The sins that kept men from being qualified as elders then are just the same as what keeps them from being qualified now. The same things. And to me, as we think about that, we think about the first century church and how this was true then and how it's true now, all these hundreds of years later. It's just more proof that the word of God is perfectly relevant and fresh today um, as it has accurately identified sinful men, sinful men for who they are. The Bible has us pegged, right? Uh, so the Word of God is absolutely just as true today as it was back then. So this next section of Scripture is one of two sort of extensive portions of Scripture that speak directly to the multiple qualifications for someone being an elder. Um, here we have verses 6 through 9 in our text in Titus. And the other place is 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. And both are written by Paul, and both are written to men that Paul trusted with the care of the church belonging to Christ. 
And first, let's clarify what that word elder means. And the Greek word is presbyteros, which in the, in the general sense does mean older man. Okay, so it could be used in a secular way or in, in a general sense to mean older man. But that word came to mean more during the time of the early church, uh, during the time of the apostles, even as it was used of men who were not merely older chronologically, but of a certain spiritual maturity. Okay? How do we know this? Well, not every older man's character permits him to be an elder. And not every older man can teach either. So it's not just about age, as we'll see in the list of qualifications. And also we should understand the, the biblical usage of a few different words that are interchangeable. And so, so we shouldn't be confused by them. So I wanted to talk about that briefly. That word presbyteros, elders. There is a word episkopos, which is overseer or sometimes bishop. And some of your translations, you'll see they'll use those in different places. Um, poimen, which is shepherd or pastor. Okay, so we have three Greek words that mean different things, but they're used interchangeably for the same, um, same men, to describe the same men. Uh, these words are used in, in different portions of Scripture, talking about the same men that are described in Titus 1 and in 1 Timothy 3. And we see usage in the book of Acts and the book of Ephesians. And we have to notice that these words don't describe different offices in the church. Okay, There's not the office of shepherd and the office of elder or the, the, uh, the office of overseer and the office of pastor. There's not these separate offices. Um, that's not what's going on here. But these are different, really what these are is different features or characteristics of the ministry of these men, what they're charged with doing. An elder is an overseer is a pastor, is a shepherd. Okay, so for example, uh, if you want to turn over to Acts 20 with me, look at a couple of verses there. Acts 20, verse 17, to begin with, says, Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders, presbyteros is the word used there, the elders of the church to come to him. Okay, and then a little farther down, same chapter, talking to the same group of men in Acts 20, verse 28. It says, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Episcopos. Okay, that, there's that different word there, but he's talking to the same group of men. And he says, To care for, poimena, uh, if that's how I pronounce it, um, shepherd or pastor, that's what that word means, to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Okay, so we see in the same chapter, talking to the same group of men, all three of those words used to describe them. Okay, so we shouldn't be confused and think these are different offices within the church. We see all three of those words used in reference to the same group of men, describing their office and function. So now on to the qualifications in, back in Titus 1. Go back there to Titus 1, verse 6. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. Okay, and these qualifications are regarding the man and his family. It's kind of the, kind of the starting point here. Of course, the first qualification is that an elder is a qualified man, not a woman. Then we see that there is a connection between how this man behaves or, or leads his family and how he would lead the church. There's a connection. The scriptures make that connection there. Paul says, if anyone is above reproach. Okay, we need to notice something about what Paul says here when he says, if, okay, if anyone is above reproach, he's not expressing doubt that someone is or can be above reproach, but he's setting the quality of being above reproach as the starting point. 
Okay? In other words, he's establishing above reproach as a given. Yeah, you wouldn't even have someone under consideration who didn't meet that standard to begin with. That's sort of what he's talking about there. This man must be above reproach. And the word Paul uses means that cannot be called into account okay, or blameless. So the question that we must ask ourselves is, Paul talking about a person who is without sin? How do we know he's not talking about a sinless person? <laughs> there are none, right? There are none but Jesus. Absolutely. So right away we know, because we can hear those words, right? A, a person above reproach or blameless, and we can automatically go to, that sounds like perfection to me, right? But that's not what's going on here. There are, there are none who are sinlessly perfect, including Paul himself, and he says that in the scriptures. So that's not what he's talking about. He can't be talking about that. This is someone not open to a charge that sticks, right? An accusation that is uh, found to be untrue about this person. Also, this is not just about someone bringing an accusation. Okay? If, if that were the standard that this person can never have an accusation brought against them, then we'd have a lot less pastors for sure. Do people bring accusations against elders and pastors? Yeah, they do. Um, the question is, is it found to be true? Is the accusation true? That's the question. Are they open to a legitimate accusation? And Matthew Henry, commenting on this topic, says, the elder candidate must be one who lies not under an ill character, but rather must have good report, even from those that are without, not grossly or scandalous, scandalously guilty, so as would bring reproach upon the holy function. He must not be such a one. And J. Vernon McGee said, that does not mean he must be perfect without sin. It does mean that an accusation that is brought against him must not be found to be true. His life must be above reproach. When someone can point a finger at an officer of the church and accurately accuse him of dishonesty, then the cause of Christ is hurt. Okay, so we see this is not about sinless perfection. If it was, if the standards was sinless perfection, there would be no church elders. There would be no pastors. Uh, if that was the standard for being able to come to the church building, we would never have anyone here. <laughs> Okay? This, things wouldn't be the same. So that's not what we're talking about. It's not about perfection. This man is to be the husband of one wife, he says. In other words, a one-woman man or a one-woman husband. And I don't believe this prohibits a man whose wife has died and he gets remarried. It's not a prohibition here. I don't believe this prohibits a man who was divorced before he was a Christian, okay? Someone who was an, an unbeliever and who comes and was divorced and comes to faith in Christ, he's a new creation. Um, so I don't think it prohibits that person. I believe at the least it prohibits a man who has multiple wives, okay? I think we know that to be true. Uh, but then that's the prohibition, that behavior is prohibited among, among all Christians, I also don't believe this prohibits unmarried men from being elders, okay? But certainly, he would be more able to counsel believers in marriage and family matters if he himself were married and had children, okay? But there's no prohibition here for single men. Paul was single. Other of the apostles were single. Um, so clearly it doesn't prohibit that. Speaking of children, uh, his must be believing children, not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. And this passage is sometimes translated as children who are faithful. Some of your Bibles might say something like that, children who are faithful. Um, I believe Paul's point here is that in some sense, 
if a man is not able to teach his children about God and at some point have them profess faith in Christ, how can he be trusted to do so for the people in the church? And I think we see this very clearly in what Paul wrote to Timothy in, in the sort of mirrored passage or section of Scripture. In, in 1 Timothy 3, 4, and 5, he says, He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? So you see that connection is made there between how the man cares for and leads his family and how he might do so in the church. It brings some things into question. And the question would be here also, believing children at what age? It doesn't say. It doesn't give an age at which they should be believing by, right? Um, we must remember that the elder cannot save his children any more than any Christian can save their children. That is a work of God. And there are, of course, differing views on this passage, but it seems to me that the children would at least profess faith in Christ at some point while the parents are raising them. I think uh, what you want to see in the elder's family is that he is actively training his children to know and love the Lord and preaching the gospel to them. And there would at some point while they're in the home be a profession of faith in Christ. I think the rest of our verse here is informative on this point as well. It sort of gives us the opposite evidence. He says they should not be open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. What are the children known for? And this is like being above reproach for the elder. And some translations say about the children here, uh, wild and disobedient. Or others say, wildness and rebellion. Okay, so these are the opposite characteristics that you'd want to see. Well, what is one of the, as you, as you think about kids, what is one of the first things you conclude when you're watching a bunch of children in a, in a class and there are some who are out of control or violent or disobedient to teachers, they're, they're completely unruly pests? What is, what is the first thing that comes to your mind? <laughs> Who's the someone at home? Parents, right? Yeah, I mean, I remember even before I had kids, sort of judging other people for the way their kids were misbehaving. Ah, my kids will never do that, all right? Uh, well, then you have kids, and then reality sets in, and all kids do that. But the point is, you have to teach them. You have to discipline them. So when you see a group of kids, and kids of a certain age that should know better are just out of control, the first thing that comes to mind is, where's their parent? Their parents clearly do not discipline them, do not train them. Um, and so it's a, that's real. That's a reality. It's not just an assumption. Uh, there, there's truth in the fact that children who are disciplined by their parents and trained by their parents generally behave better than those who are not. It's just a reality. And so you think about that in terms of the elder and his own children. Is the evidence that the children are out of control and completely disobedient to their father and mother, or are they submissive to their parents for the most part. If the requirement, now we have to get real here, if the requirement was perfect children, there would be no pastors, there would be no elders who, who had children at all. Because they wouldn't be able to meet that standard of perfection, of sinless children. We are, of course, raising little dead people who need to be born again, right? Um, so we, we have to be real about this. The requirement is not perfect children, but children that obey for the most part. When corrected and disciplined, they comply. If there's no act of correction or discipline from the elder towards his children, that shows he's not qualified to lead the church. Right? If, if, if he's letting his children run amok and everyone knows it, they are known for that, that person is not qualified to lead the church. Those are the sort of family requirements. There's a lot more we could say about those, but we'll keep moving forward. 
Um, now there's a list of other character traits necessary for an elder not to have. It starts with the ones that they're not to have. Um, they are not to be a part of his character. They are not what he's to be known for. It doesn't mean he might never sin in one of these areas, but his overall, what is his overall reputation? And we find these in the next two verses, preceded by a reminder that he must be above reproach. Okay, using the same words, he must be above reproach. He's repeating it. Uh, but it's also in these areas. So verses 7 and 8. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain. But, okay, this is the flip side. These are what he is to be. But hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. Here he's called an overseer and a steward. And Hebrews 13, 17 says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Okay, these, are, these are how he is to function in the body of Christ. It is what he's to be doing, keeping watch over souls. And it's clear he will have to give an account for how he did so, and that accounting will be when he stands before God. He will have to give an account. And what are some of the ways, Paul says, this man is going to have to watch over himself? How is he to remain above reproach? He will have to not be the following things, in verse 7, not arrogant. Now, how, can a, how can an elder be arrogant? What's, what's a way that you can think of an elder being arrogant? Thinking they were sinless? Okay, that's pretty arrogant. Yeah. Okay, not listening to people, right? Maybe they think they know so much they don't have to listen to someone's correction, maybe. Maybe someone, someone comes and says, hey, you said this today in your sermon, and... I'm confused because the scripture says this, and he just blows it off or, and pays no attention to it, thinks he's right. Um, that's arrogance. Uh, an elder should be able to receive correction like anyone else if he's wrong. What about not quick-tempered? What does that mean, not to be quick-tempered? Okay, outbursts, getting mad quickly. Sure. Yeah, I mean that. Okay, so in verse 8, when we get to that other list of the things he is to be, we see down there self-controlled is one of those things. And I think that, self, that idea of self-controlled can fit with a lot of these character traits that he's not supposed to have are people will have those because of lack of self-control. Like that, there's a connection between a lack of self-control and all of these things. And certainly being quick-tempered is one of those. Being someone who's not slow to listen. They speak quickly. They act out based on their emotion of something that was said or done. Quick-tempered. Um, not a drunkard. Okay, we know what that is. That's just not a prohibition from... Uh, drinking alcohol, okay, though some people would, would say that, is not an absolute prohibition from drinking alcohol. It's a prohibition from being a drunkard, okay, from drinking in excess. Um, there are different schools of thought, of course. Uh, different people have different convictions. Some uh, who are elders have a conviction that they don't ever want to drink because of what it might look like to someone else or... Um, they don't want to ever fall into being a drunkard. And so they just decide, you know what? I'm just not going to do it. Um, there's nothing wrong with that, that opinion. And on the other side of it, those who, are, who may take a drink here and there um, are not prohibited from doing so. 
whether it's their conviction that it's okay for them to do that. Um, and that's fine. There's no prohibition against that. The prohibition is being a drunkard. Okay? Well, in our day and age, we call it an alcoholic. But in biblical terms, it's a drunkard. Okay? It's, it's a sin. He's not to be violent. Okay? That could be physically violent. That could be violent with outbursts, with words. Um, so it's something that he's not to be. He's not to be greedy for gain. We see a lot of that in our day and age with prosperity preachers. They are all about gain. Uh, they say the things they say f- specifically for gain. Uh, they, are, they are preaching a false gospel. They are certainly greedy for gain. Um, but it's not limited to false teachers. There are others who might be sound teachers who could have this tendency toward greed. Greed for gain. Right? They are not to be that. And then verse 8 gives the positive list of character traits, the things that this man should be known for. And they are these, hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, disciplined. Um, so, hospitable. Does that mean that every elder must be the most hospitable person ever? No. There are always going to be some people that are more hospitable than others. Um, but there, there needs to be hospitality to this person. Um, a lover of good. How else would you describe that? A lover of good. That seems kind of vague. What's another way of saying that, maybe? Devoted to what is good, okay? And then the question would be, what is good? God is good. That is true. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we could, you could expand that. Go ahead. Right, yeah, sure. And then, you know, I mean, if you wanted to sort of simplify it, it's everything that the Bible teaches us that mark a true Christian life. Those are good things. The fruits of the Spirit, those are good things. Right, so a lover of good is someone who loves the things that God loves and hates the things that God hates. And they pursue those things. Again, does it mean he's perfect? In these areas, no. It means he's pursuing these things. He's an example of these things. And when he does fail in these things or in any way sinning, uh, an elder should be the first to confess, repent, turn from their sin, um, and turn towards the Lord. Um, Self-controlled, again, like I said before, that can wrap up almost any of these. Because all of those things that he is not to be he is because of lack of self-control. So I think, I think self-control is extremely important. And, and the list, that was a short list we had in this, in this last verse uh, with, what, five things? The Bible's full of all kinds of other things we are not to be and not to do. Um, and so being self-controlled is what, um, is what we need to be to help fight off those tendencies or those temptations upright, holy, again, this idea of being set apart, it's not perfection, it's that he should be an example of what a Christian is, an example of those who are set apart to God. They don't look like the world, sound like the world, Um, they can't blend in with the world. The world would recognize them as different, probably say they're strange or whatever, But, but holy in this sense is Living a godly life is set apart to God. It is uh, in this process of sanctification like every Christian. And we should remember, elders are Christians who are in the process of sanctification in their lives, just like everyone else is. It's just that 
they're the ones leading and teaching and all those things. So, uh, but they are just like everyone else. They need to be sanctified. And that is a, a continual thing for all of us. They are disciplined. Um, and let's look at Paul's requirements as we finish up here. I just want to turn over to 1 Timothy 3 and look at his requirements as stated there and compare to what we've seen here. There are some other things there and some things that are um, stated differently. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 7 is Paul, Paul writing to Timothy about this list and these qualifications. Chapter 3, verse 1, this, the saying is trustworthy if anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, any overseer must be above reproach. Sound familiar? A husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. We see some different things there. And right away, we see that he says, if anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. So there's an element here that the elder should desire that, right? Someone has not made an elder against their will by people who say, hey, you'd be a good elder, you should do that, and putting them in there, and they're not desiring that. Okay, you want someone who desires that. Um, you see a lot of the familiar things there, above reproach, the husband of one wife, um, sober-minded is different, um, hospitable, same, uh, able to teach. Okay, our, our, our passage in Titus doesn't necessarily say able to teach, but as we get into verse 9, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Okay, so that is one of the main qualifications for an elder is in, in addition to all these other things is that they're able to teach. Uh, and part of teaching is what we don't like in our society, which is that you, the elder is to rebuke people who don't teach sound doctrine or who are believing something else. Um, we're to teach what is sound doctrine, that is according to Scripture, and um, to rebuke those who contradict it. So if someone's teaching something else, they need to be rebuked and corrected. That is a job of the elder uh, or overseer. So these are the things that, as Paul is writing to Titus, and these are the things that, is need, that are needed on the island of Crete, that the churches that he has to go to are lacking in these things. Perhaps there are those who are leading in those churches. They are unqualified. They're unqualified probably for many of these reasons that he lists out here. And, and so Titus is tasked with going to those churches and appointing qualified elders according to the word of God, according to what it says here. And that's the task he's been given. Not an easy task, especially if you go to a place and they got people teaching them and they sort of like those people. And Titus comes along and says, they're unqualified. Well, he has this letter from Paul. He has, he's under the authority of Paul, who is under the authority of Christ. Paul has given him the authority to go and do these things. So, but not an easy task. Um, and not any easier than it would be today for us to make changes in churches and, and when people are unqualified to remove them from uh, a role or not allow them into a role because they're unqualified. These are not popular things, but this is what the Word of God says. This is what we should aspire to. This is what we should desire to have. Um, things to be set right. Elders to be in place. And the Scriptures teach that this is not just one elder. It's a plurality of elders. That's why we have um, more than one elder at our church, 
because the Bible teaches a plurality of elders, not just one person. Um, and there are many reasons for that. Um, and so this is what needs to be put in place. It's out of order. The church is, is not governed correctly in Crete. And so Titus is taxed with going and doing that. And Paul says, that's why I've written this letter, so that you will go and do these things. And as we continue on, um, there are, are many other instructions he gives them, um, uh, gives to Titus about what to do, and, and a lot of it has to do with teaching sound doctrine, correcting the things that are wrong and the things that are people are teaching that are wrong. And that's a, a major, major theme throughout all of Scripture is, is the people of God fighting against lies, fighting against what is untrue and needing to remain anchored in the truth of God's Word. And that's what Paul's after as he's writing this to Timothy, or I mean to Titus, I'm sorry. So let's close for tonight. We're out of time. And then we'll have 15 minutes-ish to um, answer questions and things like that. So let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you again for tonight. And thank you for um, your word as we have read it here tonight. And Lord, I pray you would remind us of your order of things, how things are to be put in place and set right in the church. And Father, that does not mean that things would never need to be corrected in terms of elders, Lord. If there are things in, in our church, even, Lord, that come about where someone is unqualified, Lord, that we would take appropriate action, that we would follow your word. I pray you give us the desire for that, the courage, the strength to do that when necessary. And Lord, that you would bless us with... Um, with men that would want to continue to grow in knowledge of you, to take on this task, Lord, that the people would, as it says in Hebrews, um, be submitting joyfully um, as, the, as others are watching over their souls who have to give an account. May it never be about arrogance or pride or money, any kind of selfishness, Lord. May it always be to please you for the sake of your church, for the sake of the name of Christ. And we'll praise you for it. And thank you for the help that you provide through your spirit and through your word. We thank you for this family, this church family that we have here at First Baptist Mount Shasta. So grateful, Lord, for your love and care for us. I want to praise you in all these things. In Jesus' name, amen.